there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money Maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Adelaide Huffman placed a pan beneath a leak in her daughter's room. The rain outside was ferocious. She had never seen anything like it. As the water continued to fall on the house, it almost masked the sound of a low, deep rumble emanating from the valley. Adelaide thought a fleet of jets was flying over the house. She had no way of knowing, but that was the sound of half the neighborhood washing away in the storm. Adelaide and her husband Tommy arrived downstairs to find several of Tommy's relatives rushing inside, taking shelter from the storm. It was his brother, sister-in-law, and eight of their kids. They explained that the creek had run over. Their house was flooding. Their car had been swept away. As Tommy helped them inside, Adelaide noticed a terrible odor emanating from the open front door. She called Tommy over to tell her what she was smelling. It was raw earth, the scent of dirt that had only moments ago been buried deep beneath the ground. While this segment of the Huffman clan was safe, that smell heralded the doom of many of their relatives. As the surrounding neighborhood washed away, It took with it Tommy's mother, many of his siblings, and many of their children. All in all, 22 members of the family were killed that night. Their killer had a name, Hurricane Camille. Welcome to Survival, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Irma Blanco. And I'm Tim Johnson. Every Monday, we'll take you inside incredible true stories of life or death situations. This is our final episode on Hurricane Camille, the Category 5 hurricane that devastated parts of Mississippi and Virginia in August 1969. Today, we'll follow both communities as they rebuild, and we'll see if the Mississippi coast has learned from its encounters with hurricanes. This episode is part of ParCast's Summer of 69 event. July 22nd through August 9th, 
all your favorite ParCast shows are teaming up to commemorate the 50th anniversary of a landmark summer in American history, the summer of 1969. From the Manson murders to the moon landing, we're diving deep into the summer America hit a boiling point with 23 special episodes across 16 different ParCast originals. We'll be digging into the fallout of MLK's assassination, a wide-reaching LSD cult, and rumors of a Kennedy family cover-up. You can find these specials and more all on our new ParCast Presents feed on Spotify or anywhere you listen to podcasts. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. So let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. In the early morning of August 20th, 1969, 14-year-old Warren Rains of Nelson County, Virginia, clung to a large tree, trying to avoid being swept away by the 10-foot-high floodwaters that were destroying his home. He had no idea what had become of his parents or his siblings. All he could do was hold on. Like Ben Duckworth, he survived in this manner until finally the rain stopped. Little did Warren know, just a few yards down the road, his brother Carl had also survived in a similar fashion by holding onto a tree. If caught in floodwaters, large foliage rooted deep in the earth can provide a stable handhold and historically has often done so for many a hurricane survivor. As the weather continued to clear, Warren eventually spotted Carl, taking shelter in a tree of his own. The two boys were overjoyed to see one another, but it was no time to celebrate. They still had their parents and three other siblings to account for. They were eventually picked up by boats and taken to dry land. Making their way around what was left of the town, they turned up few leads. Immediately after a disaster strikes, chaos reigns supreme. Emergency services have yet to arrive, structures that are still standing threaten to collapse, and the trapped and injured have precious little time before they join the ranks of the dead. Carl and Warren didn't want to see their family members join those ranks, and so they were active in their search, going to the ruins of their father's business and anywhere else they could think of where the family might try to meet up. Surviving family friends tried to urge them to have patience. There were rumors that their family had survived, that they were simply stuck in a different part of the valley. It was true that travel through the area had been significantly reduced. Mudslides were so severe that the only way to safely make it from one end of the county to the other was by helicopter. But years later, in an interview with Western Virginia Public Television, Warren would say that he knew fairly quickly that people were just trying to make him feel better. If his family was alive, they would have made contact within a few days of the storm. The boys went to stay with nearby extended family while they awaited news. Tragically, on August 22, 1969, Carl and Warren learned the truth. Both parents and all of their siblings had been found dead. They were either drowned or crushed by debris. 
only two of the neighbor children had survived. It was a surreal experience. The two boys' lives had been transformed by six hours of rainfall. Not only was their family gone, but their entire community as well. All that was left was to return home and salvage what memories they could. But upon arriving there, they were greeted with one final metaphorical gut punch. The family home, the place where they had spent so many nights with their lost loved ones, where they stored all of their childhood treasures, the place that stood as a monument to their lives was perfectly fine. The first floor was flooded, but the structure remained standing. If they had simply remained sleeping in their beds, if that dreaded phone call in the night had never come, then the entire Reigns family would have survived. Recovery on the Mississippi coast was moving at a slightly faster pace, but new revelations as to the extent of the storm's damage were equally gut-wrenching. Camille had indeed been the strongest storm to make landfall in the continental United States in the 20th century. Miles inland, Hubert and Josephine Duckworth received word of their son Ben's death in the most callous way possible through a report on the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite. The story featured the Richelieu apartments where Ben had lived and condescendingly suggested that 23 had died there because they'd decided to have a hurricane party rather than to evacuate. Unfortunately, cruel reveals such as this are common in the immediate aftermath of a disaster. The sheer volume of tragedy means that not every piece of news can be delivered with care. Not every next of kin can be gently informed of a death before it's broadcast across the country. But for the Duckworths, their world was likely turned upside down by this revelation. The boy they had seen grow from a baby to a man had been snuffed out in an instant. Hubert Duckworth made it his mission to reach past Christiane as soon as possible. Though many roads were blockaded at this point by the National Guard, the Seabees, and others, Hubert claims to have made it to the site of the Richelieu within that last week in August 1969. He found the ruins of the apartment, which in truth were nothing more than the concrete foundations of the now infamous building. Hubert likely had no idea what to do next. He had imagined that he might be able to comb through the rubble and find what was left of his son, but there was no rubble to comb through. It dawned on him that his son's body could be anywhere. Not only that, but the corpse would likely be unrecognizable. Emergency responders were already having trouble identifying bodies. Victims died from either drowning or blunt force trauma. As a result, their lungs were filled with water, causing them to sink beneath the waves where their skin was bleached, discolored, and cracked. But then the waters receded, exposing the corpses to sunlight and scavengers, which further disfigured the bodies. If the victim didn't have a tattoo or a wedding ring or a distinct hairstyle, then, well, they might never be identified. As the horror of the situation sank in, Hubert noticed a familiar young man assisting in the cleanup nearby. 
it was Mike Gannon, the Navy CB and Richelieu resident who had attempted to get Mrs. Matthews to safety after the collapse of the building. Hubert likely knew him from previous visits to pass Christiane to see Ben. Acting on instinct, Hubert approached Mike. This kind of quick thinking is essential in disaster situations. In another few minutes, Mike might have been whisked off to another part of the state to aid in relief there. Hubert asked Mike, where can I find my son's body? Mike looked at him with surprise, processing who he was. When it occurred to him that this must be Ben Duckworth's father, his heart broke, not because he had to deliver bad news, but because he was so happy that he was able to do the polar opposite. Mike said, Ben isn't dead. I've seen him and he's all right. Just a few days earlier, as the storm receded on the morning of August 18, 1969, Ben Duckworth had clung to the same tree branch that he'd been holding on to since the night before. His skin was chapped from hours of exposure to wind and salt water. His muscles were cramped from holding the same pose. When he woke up, he could hardly believe it as he saw aid workers approaching. On the ground, no less. He was sure the water from last night would be standing for another year. The workers called up to him, and he realized that he was too high up to be reached. Not wanting to stay up there a moment longer than he had to, he began to shimmy down toward the trunk. His limbs ached with each movement. He only made it a few inches before his body gave out and plummeted toward the ground. Luckily, the aid workers were watching and rushed forward to catch him. He looked rough, but not as bad as some they had seen. Despite everything that had happened, he was going to survive. However, back in the present, Ben was feeling something less than joy as he lay in his cot at the local CB center. His skin still stung. His leg had actually suffered a punctured artery, and it had all been for nothing. He thought his day spent preparing the community for the storm was a good deed, but he might as well have been assisting his fellow residents in suicide. The boards had been blown right off the windows. The cars he moved to a higher elevation were still washed into the ocean. And of course, people like Matthews, who he had helped to relocate to the third floor, had all died anyway. Likely driven by his trauma, Ben snuck out from the emergency clinic so that he could return to the ruins of his old apartment. According to author Philip D. Hearn, once he made it to the ruins, Ben immediately encountered Rick Keller. Keller was the engineer who, along with his wife Luann, had taken shelter with Ben in the third floor apartment. When Ben last saw him, he and Luann were being sucked into the air by the storm. But now there was just Rick. He revealed to Ben that Luann had not survived the storm. His trauma was so severe that Ben couldn't get any more details out of him. In the coming days, they would discover that there weren't many other survivors from the Richelieu. Engineer Mike Beelan had survived. As mentioned, so had Mike Gannon. 
and significantly, so had Mary Ann Gerlock, who had swam to safety from her second-floor apartment, though her husband, Fritz, unable to swim, had drowned. Gerlock's survival would come to play a significant part in the story of the Richelieu. She proved to be the most vocal, both with the authorities and with the press, and as a result, her version of events became the dominant one. The problem with this was that she was never actually on the third floor, so she had no idea what had happened there. She assumed they were having some sort of party, and it was this story that she spun to the local sheriff, along with her belief that all 23 remaining residents of the apartment complex had died. It made for a dramatic lesson in heeding the weather warnings of local and national authorities. And so, Walter Cronkite and others like him reported Gerlach's tale within days of its original telling. This led to the false report that the Duckworths received regarding Ben's death. As has been made clear, the decision to stay at the Richelieu was a bad one that led the majority who chose to do so to their deaths. However, reducing the motivations of the residents to they were having a party has never sat well with survivors like Ben Duckworth or Rick Keller. They stayed to help the elderly Matthews. They stayed because they were assured the building was resilient. They stayed because they didn't have any other solid options. As they gathered around the TV screen that night, watching the weather, they may have had a beer or two, but it was anything but a party. Regardless of rumors, however, Ben and his fellow survivors were just happy to be alive. However, even though they had survived, their community had not. The Mississippi coast was destroyed, and it would take an army to rebuild. Up next, the rebuild begins. And now back to the story. After being destroyed by Category 5 Hurricane Camille on August 18, 1969, the Mississippi coast was in desperate need of relief aid. It came in spades. The National Guard, Mississippi State Police, Navy Seabees, American Red Cross, and Mennonites arrived one after the other. The National Guard formed a perimeter and essentially made the entire coast a restricted area. This is an important step after a disaster to ensure that no more lives are lost. With power lines exposed, the water contaminated, and buildings on the edge of collapse, a disaster zone is a dangerous area. Not to mention, the authorities need to be able to search the ruins without interference. Those trapped in rubble may be running out of time as they lose air or water seeps into where they're trapped. Those who were found alive were mostly evacuated to nearby Hattiesburg and Jackson. Survival after a disaster also means surviving the immediate aftermath, and there was no clean water, shelter, or food to be had on the coast. The safest choice was to simply go north. But of course, it wasn't practical to move the entire population to a new area and call the Riviera a loss. Heavy trucks were brought into the area to assist with the cleanup and provide supplies. Dump trucks were useful in that they allowed the quick removal of large amounts of rubble. This was key, as the rubble could quickly become home to dangerous animals if left unattended. 
poisonous snakes and other reptiles were a common sight in the knee-deep waters around town. Additionally, loose building materials such as asbestos could release toxins into the environment. Tankers arrived to bring fuel to other trucks, along with much-needed clean water for the workers and the remaining residents. Tractor trailers came next with food and other essentials. D.W. Snyder, vice chairman of the Mississippi Public Service Commission, said, if it had not been for the trucking industry with their coordination, we would not be where we are today. But even with the assistance of trucking, the outlook was still grim. The bodies piled up. There were so many dead, refrigerator trucks were used as morgues. In Virginia, the outlook was similarly grim. Blue Ridge Country Magazine reported on a college student who came back to town to help with the search efforts. He spent his day wading through miles of waist-deep mud, looking for bodies. The smell of fresh earth, rotting plant life, garbage, and yes, bodies filled the air. As he combed through inch after inch of mud, he was never sure what he would find. Shoes, jewelry, car parts. But then, after pushing some more mud aside, he saw it, a body. The calm face of a young girl lay in the mud as if she were asleep. The boy realized he knew this girl. She had been his date to a dance not long ago. When the workers in Virginia found a body, they would signal for a helicopter to fly down and pick it up. There were no trucks here. The country remained completely unnavigable from the mudslides. In total, about 130 were dead in Nelson County alone. Though many of these bodies were recovered, some were never found, lost to the sweeping mud and rain. There was no avalanche of mud on the Mississippi coast, though mud had been washed into storefronts and homes and filled the streets. It was a major chore for returning occupants to clear the slop from their buildings. Law enforcement officer George Mixon recalled that as people did this, doctors walked around inoculating everyone. It wasn't even a question as to what they were being inoculated against. Tetanus, rabies, they were at risk for it all. While all of these civilian efforts were underway, they were supported by the Navy Seabees, who provided a base camp of sorts. Shelter, after all, is a key component of survival. As a construction force, the Seabees were able to create mobile home encampments for the survivors of Camille. A community of 58 such homes in the past Christiane area was dubbed Camille Court. Eventually, the Department of Housing and Urban Development would provide thousands of these temporary housing units across the coast. Not everyone was given complete access to these key tools of survival. In 1969, segregation was a major issue at the heart of Mississippi politics. There was significant racism among state government leaders, almost all of whom were, at that time, major advocates for school segregation. As a result, a debate arose as to whether the state's black population was receiving a fair share of recovery resources. Governor John Bell Williams, who was historically pro-segregation, had given control of all the funds to various wealthy white local businessmen. 
a series of New York Times reports from January 1970, also revealed that the Small Business Administration, or SBA, distributed $200 million in relief funds, but 99% of those dollars went to white business and homeowners. In a state where a black population of roughly 36%, that seems suspicious. The Times quotes black SBA official Joseph Conrad as saying he personally ensured there was no bias involved in the loan distribution. He had found that there were simply far more white people living in the coastal areas that were affected. But even if black communities hadn't been directly impacted by the storm, black residents of Mississippi still had a stake in the rebuilding. The chief concern was that any new schools that were built were located in more centralized areas than before. Desegregation was now the law of the land, and placing the nicest schools in predominantly white areas wasn't going to fly anymore. Discrimination didn't just exist within the government, of course. There were also issues with private charities. The New York Times reported on January 10, 1970, that black people were particularly disgusted over the actions of the Red Cross. Dr. Gilbert R. Mason, one of the black emergency council members appointed by Governor Williams, told the Senate subcommittee that the Red Cross was a demon that essentially wanted to keep black people impoverished. The New York Times wrote that the outcry surrounded the idea that lower-class, mostly black, citizens were given second-hand items or minimal aid, when white, middle-class citizens were given more relief funds, brand-new items of clothing, and the like. To appease his critics, Governor Williams placed three black representatives on his emergency council. They were later able to testify before Congress about the discriminatory practices they did in fact witness during the relief effort. Despite these many setbacks, the black community in Mississippi did survive, though all people of color were reminded that even in a post-segregation America, they were often still treated as second-class citizens. Meanwhile, across the country in Virginia, the community of Massey's Mill in Nelson County was teetering on the edge. Over 100 were found dead, though exact numbers continue to elude authorities. As Warren Rains and his brother Carl sifted through the muddy remains of the first floor of their home, they knew that living here wasn't going to be an option. Both were too young to live on their own, and regardless, this entire valley was now a mausoleum. The infrastructure simply wasn't in place anymore for the community to continue anytime soon. The roads were buckled, utility lines completely torn up, and the mud alone would take months to clear. Amenities that are now taken for granted were simply absent. There was no water to quench thirst, nowhere dry to sleep. Sometimes the smells were so overwhelming that it was hard to breathe. Earth that had been deep underground was now exposed to the sunlight. Sewage lines spilled out and mixed with the mud. One day, life would return to this place. But for now, all people like the Rains boys could do was collect what belongings they had left and move on. In a later interview with WVPT Public Media, 
An adult Warren recalled how he and his brother had gone to live with relatives, though he quickly entered into a school at a military academy. Resilience experts write that mentorship and goal setting are extremely important when faced with grief. For Warren, the military school likely provided some of these things. After such a horrific experience, had these communities learned any lessons? In Virginia, the answer seems to be yes. In 2015, National Weather Service Science Operations Officer Steve Keaton presented on hurricane preparedness at an event commemorating the 46th anniversary of Camille. In an article for The News and Advance, a Virginia news outlet, Keaton noted that modern weather forecasting would give the people of Virginia much more warning than what was available in 1969. Families would not be called in the middle of the night as the rains were. They would know of the coming storm days in advance. Keaton also discussed how he had spent years working to inform the citizens of Nelson County and elsewhere about how to avoid building their homes in flood-prone areas. These precautions seem to have worked, though Virginia has experienced flood-related deaths since 1969. The body count has never been nearly as high as during that fateful summer when Camille struck. Rather famously, the Gulf Coast has not fared as well. Some of this was foreshadowed in the conflicts over race and class. Being that the area was and is a tourist destination, much of the rebuilding in Mississippi focused on recapturing beauty rather than fortifying for the future. And for a time, the area recovered. As we've seen, the evacuation warnings and emergency response to Camille were basically effective at getting the word out and then stemming the damage in the immediate aftermath of the storm. But few considered that things could have actually been worse. The Mississippi Gulf Coast was not a massively populated area at the time. There were about 150,000 people evacuated in 1969. Compare that to the 750,000 that would be evacuated during Hurricane Andrew in 1992. If a storm hit in the modern day with millions living in the area, could everyone be relocated in time? Something else that the people of 1969 couldn't possibly have accounted for is the advent of severe climate change. Though there's no evidence to show that human-caused atmosphere changes will lead to an increase in the number of hurricanes, the data does show that the hurricanes that do develop will be more likely to grow to categories four and five. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, reports that as the atmosphere becomes warmer and more moist, rainfall during hurricanes may increase by as much as 15% wind speeds might increase by as much as 10%. Perhaps the most classic symptom of global warming is sea levels rising. As the water continues to rise, the storm surges that result from hurricanes will be much worse. More water in the ocean means higher waves and greater flooding. All of this means that the hurricanes of the modern era will be worse than those of the past. The data shows that Category 4 and 5 hurricanes have increased by 80% in the last 30 years. The people of the Gulf Coast know this better than anyone. In 2005, 
they experienced the worst storm to hit the United States in nearly 100 years. It was called Katrina, and it would challenge the preparedness of some of the very same communities that had been affected by Camille. Next up, we follow communities such as Biloxi and Gulfport as they encounter the same types of devastation as in 1969. And now back to the story. On August 29th, 2005, just 11 days after Hurricane Camille's 36th birthday, Hurricane Katrina came to bear on the same communities of the Gulf Coast. This time, the hurricane made landfall in an even more dangerous area than Camille. Katrina was further to the west, touching down in New Orleans, which is below sea level, in addition to the Mississippi coast. Though it was not as powerful as Camille, it was much, much bigger, 400 miles wide, in fact. Over a million people were evacuated from the coast in preparation for the coming storm. Two men who didn't evacuate were storm chasers Mike Tice and Jim Reed, who had decided to ride out the storm at the Holiday Inn in Gulfport, Mississippi. They had taken many precautions, but they could have never expected the extent of the damage they were about to witness. Katrina began as a Category 3, its winds dangerous but not historically so, though the flooding was immediate and terrible. The storm surge ran the length of the Gulf Coast, thrusting billions of gallons of water across Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, and Florida. Beaches were eroded, islands submerged, and neighborhoods destroyed. In Gulfport, the storm chasers filmed as the front lobby of the hotel slowly filled with water. The flood happened at an exponential rate. At first, they were puddles. Then, the antechamber was full of knee-deep water. Eventually, the doors burst, allowing the water to pour into the hotel lobby. The chasers continued to film, though this was not a smart survival tactic. At any moment, a large wave could have blown open the doors and sent large objects hurtling after the two men. They were lucky. Though the doors did burst and the water levels did rise, it did so at a slow enough rate to where they had time to retreat to the stairwell. Back outside, wind speeds increased and the hurricane officially became a Category 4. In New Orleans, levees that had been built to withstand up to a Category 3 burst, allowing 80% of the city to flood. In Mississippi, buildings that weren't properly hurricane-proofed since Hurricane Camille were obliterated. Hundreds of thousands of homes were destroyed. Those who sought to ride out the storm quickly learned that they had made a poor survival decision. Water slowly filled their homes, rising as high as two stories and drowning or crushing those within. Many of the dead were elderly. Mike Tice and Jim Reed actually saved an older woman at the Holiday Inn, carrying her to the safety of a higher floor. They then continued to film as the water rose through the stairwell. It slapped and slapped against the walls, climbing higher and higher. Like Ben Duckworth decades before them, the storm chasers realized they were running out of room. Across the gulf, the storm surge was reaching 20 feet or higher. 
just as Camille had done. And just as with Camille, many had underestimated the amount of water that would wash ashore. Entire tractor trailers were hoisted up and thrown through buildings. Whole buildings were lifted off their foundations and washed inland or into the Bay St. Louis. The central air pressure inside the hurricane dropped to record lows, creating further instability within the storm and increasing the wind speeds. Katrina was upgraded to a Category 5. The fact that we know about Reed and Tice's story at all speaks to the fact that they did survive. Their choice of shelter was ideal. The building was reinforced and rose far beyond two stories. It's rare that floodwaters go higher than that. They were also far enough away from the shore so as not to be hit with the full force of the storm surge. Both men continued to film as the water receded, but the winds increased. By afternoon, the two storm chasers were able to return to the courtyard of the hotel, which was now emptied of water, though full of debris. The wind tore at their clothing and skin. It was an apocalyptic scene, but they would survive. Reed's blog recounting the event suggests that the storm chasers were well prepared to wait out any curfew or quarantine. They brought enough food for one week and enough water to last them two. Reed mentions that they would ultimately end up sharing these provisions with fellow survivors. Though it is never recommended that anyone stay to ride out a hurricane, the storm chasers seem to have done so in the safest way possible. Like many hurricanes, Katrina left as quickly as it arrived. Just as with Camille, the damage was incredible. It seemed there had been no improvement in the survival rates from 1969. In the immediate aftermath, it was clear that the results were actually even more deadly than Camille. New Orleans, a more populated area than the Mississippi coast, had been nearly destroyed. The failure of the levees had allowed unheard of levels of flooding, which spilled over into Mississippi as well. Blame for this failure fell on the Army Corps of Engineers, who designed the system. The New York Times reported that the walls were neither tall enough nor strong enough. They had sunk into the earth over the years, allowing waves to more easily crash over them. And the force and size of the storm surge literally pushed some flood walls back. So while Camille had seen close to 250 deaths, Katrina saw nearly 2,000, with between 230 and 300 of those deaths in Mississippi. Part of the reason the numbers remain unclear is due to the cruel nature of hurricanes. Wind and waves are so severe that they hurl a body to the bottom of the ocean or eviscerate it entirely. Though it can be assumed the individual died in a hurricane, the official numbers still classify them as missing. Besides the human cost, the financial impact of Katrina was also significant. The hurricane caused $125 billion in damage, which, according to NOAA, made it the most costly hurricane in U.S. history before it was tied with Hurricane Harvey in 2017. Mississippi felt this tremendously. 
FEMA, the United States Federal Emergency Management Agency, reported that one million people, or as they pointed out, a third of the population, were affected by the storm. $1.3 billion went toward their recovery. Once again, this looked very similar to Camille. Food, clean water, mobile homes, the basic means of survival. Years later, in 2011, the New York Times revisited the issue of the levees. The Army Corps of Engineers built a new system, the Gulf Intracoastal Waterway West Closure Complex, which cost $15 billion. This was a significant step and showed that the country was finally taking hurricanes more seriously. Though a storm as severe as Katrina has a small chance of developing again in the near future, everything is possible when it comes to weather. With that in mind, the question arises as to why humans continue to populate areas that are hurricane-prone. The Mississippi coast especially seems vulnerable. With its emphasis on tourism and lack of advanced protections like those now in place in New Orleans, the area will continue to be demolished time and time again. After Katrina, FEMA allocated $364 million in funds to go toward hurricane preparedness in Mississippi. They touted this as making the state stronger and better prepared. Others argue that even these sorts of precautions are simply a slight variation on making the same mistakes over and over. FEMA now mandates that Mississippi architects build a certain amount above sea level. This only does so much. While it may protect a structure from being knocked down entirely, there is no amount of planning that can keep a building from being soaked. Even when elevated, floors and walls are splashed inside and out with rain and floodwaters and have to be refitted after the storm. In an interview with the New York Times, FEMA employee Todd Davison pointed out that architects don't seem to want to accept this fact, nor the fact that as sea levels continue to rise, so will minimum sea level building requirements. Building houses on stilts 50 feet high will not be practical. Many of these homes are also not affordable for the low-income residents of these coastal areas. In an interview with the New Orleans Times-Picayune, Waveland Mayor Mike Smith was quoted as saying, a lot of people here were from New Orleans who had second homes. A lot of them never came back. Those who can afford to rebuild, rebuild, or they decide it's too costly and leave the area. As the storms get worse, how many times will the coast be rebuilt before the loss of life and the financial burden on the United States becomes too great? Ultimately, your chances of surviving a hurricane increase 100% if you simply remove yourself from the areas affected by them. Many resist the move or can't afford it, but the choice may be taken from them as the storms intensify and taxpayers resist continuing to support the rebuilding of these communities. In an interview with NPR, Rob Young, who directs the program for the study of developed shorelines at Western Carolina University, discussed how the economic benefit of a resort-style coastline, such as the Mississippi Riviera, is outweighed by this constant rebuilding. Casinos don't generate profits at the bottom of the ocean. 
These are complex issues. Obviously, all of the Mississippi coastline will not be relocating further inland overnight. And yet, radically different futures are difficult to imagine until we find ourselves living in them. The Mississippi coast of the future might be a series of cities on stilts, elaborate boardwalks that have to be remodeled once a year after storms. The population will decrease as fewer and fewer people can afford this lifestyle, and the region may become a ghost town. According to World Population Review, the population growth of Mississippi slowed to a crawl between the 1950s and the 1980s, and in recent years, the state's population has actually begun to decline. Though this is a sad trend, it's preferable to dozens or even hundreds dying every year from hurricanes. Because, as we said, severe weather is inevitable. And though weather tracking has improved and FEMA has improved building codes, nothing can prepare the coast for the fury of another Category 5 hurricane. 200 mile per hour winds, 24 inches of rainfall, Nothing that mankind can build in the near future can withstand these extreme conditions. Residents of Mississippi can heed these warnings and pursue relocation, or like Ben Duckworth and the residents of the Richelieu in 1969 and the storm chasers at the Holiday Inn in 2005, they can gamble with nature to see if they survive. Collect a week's worth of food and two weeks worth of water. Make sure you have a portable radio, a flashlight, and rain gear. Batten down your windows, turn off the utilities, and retreat to the second, or preferably third, floor. Most of all, pray. Because like the Rains family in Virginia, your house might be totally spared. Or, like hundreds of people across Mississippi, it might be utterly destroyed. Thanks again for tuning in to our Survival Summer of 69 special. If you enjoyed this episode, check out ParCast's continued retrospective into the Summer of 69. From July 22nd to August 9th, the Summer of 69 will feature 23 special episodes across 16 different podcasts, covering everything from Vietnam War protests to the Zodiac Killer. We'll be back with a new episode of Survival next week. If you're interested in learning more about the summer of 69, be sure to check out our new ParCast Presents feed on Spotify or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Survival was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebeskin. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Survival is written by Greg Castro and stars Irma Blanco and Tim Johnson. 